Welcome to the teaching ministry at Magnolia's First. We hope the next few minutes will help you take your next steps on your faith journey. And we would love to help you take those next steps. Just head over to m1bc.org and fill out the connect form and a pastor will get in touch with you very soon. Or you can text us at 281-343-3033. A judge in a courtroom will make a decision and hand down a judgment that sometimes can be a life or death matter. And then the, the judges that are the most powerful in our land are, of course, our Supreme Court judges. And literally, some of their decisions affect life or death. I'm very grateful for the recent decision of the court to overturn Roe v. Wade and potentially save the lives of thousands upon thousands of innocent children within the wombs of their mothers. The job of a judge is a very important one. It's the judge's responsibility to evaluate the offense and pronounce judgment. That's what they do. But is it our job to be the judge of others? Well, Jesus actually had a very clear answer to that question. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 1, he said, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. As I tried to do a word study on that verb, judge, and I, I looked into the, the commentaries and the, the language tools that most every pastor has. I, I am not a Greek scholar, but I read those who uh, are very proficient in the language, and I, I tried to find a clear, at least in my mind, definition of the verb judge, and I didn't find one that just expressed it in a way that I could understand. So I wrote my own, and I share it with you. Judge would be, quote, to assume that you know another person's motives when only God knows the heart, and to speak critically of them when God has not given you that privilege or responsibility to judge. A biblical illustration that helped to define it more clearly for me comes from the book of Job. Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible. We assume Genesis is, but scholars believe Job was written historically or chronologically before the book of of Genesis. And it's a powerful story. If you've never read the book of Job, uh, read it. it. It will overwhelm you, but it will be a very insightful Uh, experience. And in that story of Job, as God had been testing him or allowing him to be tested, and he had lost so very much, two friends came to him and, and said that your troubles have to be the result of sin in your life. That's the only real explanation, though Job in reality was completely innocent and had a a heart deeply in love with God. 
And after their harsh criticisms that were so unjust and judgmental, this was Job's reply to those who had accused and slandered him. Job chapter 19, beginning with verse 2. Job said, how long will you torture me? How long will you try to crush me with your words? You have already insulted me ten times. You should be ashamed of treating me so badly. Even if I have sinned, that is my concern, not yours. You think you're better than I am, using my humiliation as evidence of my sin. I found it very interesting as I studied that verb in Matthew chapter 7 from the words of Jesus. It's the very same Greek word that James will use in the passage we will study today. And to, to reflect on that and to kind of set the stage, I want to go back to the first verse of James chapter 4, which we looked at last week. And James, in chapter 4, verse 1, asks two questions of those Jewish Christ followers to whom he was writing who'd been scattered throughout the Roman Empire because of persecution, and they had formed local bodies, local churches, and there was turmoil and chaos in many of them because there was infighting and animosity between the believers. And so James wrote in chapter 4, verse 1, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? Those evil, sinful desires were resulting in sinful actions that was causing division and chaos within the church because those early Christ followers were judging one another. We're in the midst of our 16-week verse-by-verse through the book of James, and we come this morning to chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. We're just going to look at two verses from James, but I'm going to pull in a number of scriptures that I think are relevant to what James is saying here. Uh, and this is critical, timeless truth. Yes, he wrote it to early believers in the church some 20 centuries ago, but it is still relevant for us today. And so I want you to hear what James was saying from his heart. They're hard words, but they are so critical. James chapter 4, let's take the first sentence of verse 11. He said, don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. Don't speak evil against each other. Now, let, let me tell you something James was not referring to. James was not referring to dealing redemptively with sin in the church or sin in the lives of, of Christ's followers. It is our responsibility to hold each other accountable if someone is living in open, unquestioned, blatant sin. Now, it doesn't mean we should meddle in each other's business and try to find things to, uh, uh, to correct them for. We're not, we're not talking about the regular struggles and sins that all of us deal with because we are sinful human beings. But we're, we're talking about blatant sin that is harming the testimony of the church and the witness of the gospel. That is to be dealt with 
in a redemptive way. There is such a thing as church discipline, but when that happens, it needs to happen in humility. It needs to happen with righteous motives. It needs to have the intent of the redemption and restoration of that Christ follower. And here's how the Apostle Paul described how that should take place. Galatians 6, beginning with verse 1. Paul said, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens. And in this way, hello. Yes, we're in James. Thank you. <laughs> and in this way, obey the law of Christ. Share each other's burdens, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. The intent here is to humbly help the person who has strayed from the truth of Scripture. It's to help them, not to harm them. But James and Jesus as well are talking about something entirely different than that. They're talking about malicious criticism, usually behind the back of the person, without concern about how it would impact them or impact the church for that matter. And, and, and it happens because somebody really, if, if you dig down into their motivations, and only God can do that, it would reveal they want to feed their own ego make themselves feel important. That's what Job's quote-unquote friends were doing. And that's exactly what James is saying. Don't, don't speak evil against each other. John MacArthur in his commentary describes this kind of act this way. Quote, mindless, thoughtless, careless, critical, derogatory, untrue speech about another. Wow, end quote. James goes on in verse 11. He said, if you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. Now, what does James mean by that? Criticizing and judging God's law. You are passing judgment on God's law because you hear what he's saying and you choose not to obey. You judge it unworthy of compliance. You judge it as something that you don't feel you have to be subject to. And remember, as we've started this whole series, James' purpose in this letter is to define and describe real faith and to talk about the evidences that authenticates and validates our faith as being the real thing. And so he's saying, this is one of the evidences that you don't speak evil against each other. You don't slander one another. You don't talk maliciously and critically about each other behind their back. That's not faith. And remember what James had said earlier in the letter, chapter 2, verse 17. He said, so you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. And so he's saying, 
If you believe the word of God to be true, this is how you need to act. And really, he's, he's just affirming what Jesus had said in Luke's gospel, chapter 6, beginning with verse 46. Here's what Jesus said. So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then follows it. It's like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on solid rock. When the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it's well built. And then he contrasts, verse 49. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house right on the ground, or some translations say on sand, without a foundation. When the floods sweep down against that house, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. That's what James is calling judging the law. And so let me put it this way. When you or I blatantly disregard any teaching of Scripture, it reveals a rebellious heart toward God. I think one of the great tragedies in our generation is that lubies are closing right and left. I mean, it's about five years ago that the lubies in Tomball closed, and every time I drive by it and it's vacant, I grieve a little bit. The one in the woodlands just closed down. Do you know that? Thankfully, there's still one in Conroe. But here's why I like lubies so much. I can go through the line, and I can pick exactly what I want and leave what I don't want. I can pick uh, fried fish, which I do often, uh, and I can get yams and fried okra, and I can leave turnip greens. I don't understand you people who eat turnip greens. It looks like something scraped off the bottom of a lawnmower, but you can have that if that's, that's what you like. And I can get chocolate pie instead. I, I, I love lubies because I can pick and choose what I want. The scripture is not like that. If we're going to be faithful to Christ, we can say, all right, I like this command. I don't like that one. I think I'll leave that one alone. I'll take this one. That's not too hard. You can't treat the word of God like lubies. It is all to be obeyed. And what James is saying is, if you hear what I'm saying about not judging one another, if you hear what I'm teaching about not speaking evil of one another, and you choose not to obey it, you are judging the very word of God. And here's what 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says about the scripture. I've read this many times, but it is foundational. 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is inspired by God. What's the first word there? All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives, what we've done wrong. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Here's what I'm trying to say in one sentence. To allow God's truth to change our heart and impact our life is not an option for the Christ follower, it's an obligation. It's a promise we made. 
when we stepped across the line of faith. And yes, we fail. Yes, we stumble. Yes, we do it imperfectly. But our heart must be, with God's help, to live in obedience to what he teaches because he is wise and he teaches us that which will give him glory and bless us. So to pick one that we decide to leave, like I leave turnip greens on the table at Luby's, is not God's way. Going back to James 4, verse 11, the next sentence says, but your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. If, if you're familiar with the paraphrase of the Bible called the message, here's how it renders that verse. You're supposed to be honoring the message, not writing graffiti all over it. James says that real faith means that we're not just hearers of the word, we're doers of the word. We hear it, we obey it, and it changes us. Chapter 4 of James, verse 12, begins like this. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or destroy. When we criticize, slander, and judge someone, we're claiming a right that belongs rightfully only to God. Are you following me? We are, are becoming, in essence, a God, little g, in their life. So here's a warning. If you are entered into a conversation with someone and they start a sentence in one of these ways, watch out for what's coming next. Here's one. Now stop me if I'm wrong, but... Or how about this one? Now I don't mean to be critical, but... Or perhaps I shouldn't say this about so-and-so, but... Or, I really like so-and-so as a person, but you can count on whatever follows those kind of intros to be in direct contradiction to what the Scripture is teaching us today. It's out of bounds. For the times that we slander, criticize, or gossip about someone, we are acting as if we are the judge. But in reality, we will one day have to stand before the one who really is the judge and give account. So James goes on in verse 12. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Uh, someone paraphrased that verse this way. Who do you think you are sitting in condemnation over someone else? To presume that we have the right to criticize someone else while, as Jesus said, we still have logs in our own eyes indicates a heart that's filled with arrogance and pride. Here's what Romans 12 verse 3 says, and I want to read this from the Good News Bible because I like the wording from that translation. Paul said, and because of God's gracious gift to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you should. Instead, be modest in your thinking and look, judge yourself according to the amount of faith that God has given to you. Paul goes on to, 
to describe how we are to live in the church, how we are to relate to each other in the 12th chapter of Romans, beginning with verse 9 in the New Living Translation. Paul said, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our, our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. I like this next sentence. And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. So what are we to do if, if there's a genuine issue, something that you just, you just can't leave alone, something that, that is not trivial, it's major, it's a conflict between it's hurt your heart uh, against someone else, what do you do with that? Does the Bible give us any in instruction? Yes, as a matter of fact, Jesus did in Matthew chapter 18 beginning with verse 15. Here's the process when there's a genuine issue that needs to be dealt with between two believers. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense, one-on-one, -on -one, privately. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, you can't find agreement. And by the way, sometimes we need to agree to disagree in love. Sometimes we just see things so differently and it's not really a matter of right and wrong, biblical or unbiblical. We just can't, we can't see things the same way. The, the thing we need to do then is just to say, okay, we don't agree on this, but I still love you as my brother. I still love you as my sister. And, and you just move forward without animosity. But if you are unsuccessful, verse 16, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. In other words, you, you pull in godly advisors and if they believe that your issue is legitimate and still needs to be reconciled, then you go back to the person with whom you are offended and together, prayerfully, humbly, you try to come back to the table about that issue. But if, if all three or four of you believe that it's still not justified, it's still not reconciled, then he says, verse 17, if the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Now, in our context, in our setting, that doesn't mean if you can't settle it, I'm going to let you stand on the platform and talk to the whole church. That's not what that means. In our setting, our deacons, are they are not administrators, they are not rulers, they are, they are not governors, they are spiritual counselors. 
and the difficult issues of the church time and time again, I or the other pastors will take to them for their godly counsel. And I can't tell you how many times our deacons have helped us to know what God's will is in something. But if this kind of situation, this biblical process were ever to come to a head where someone has followed the scripture one-on-one first and then with two or three witnesses and it still can't be settled, then you would have opportunity to come meet with our deacons and to present your case and the other person will present their case and then humbly we'd try to to reconcile it or deal with it. But do you know how many times in almost 33 years that's happened in this church? Zero. Zero. Instead, not just our church, but every church has those that they would prefer to talk behind someone's back and criticize them to someone else rather than to follow what Jesus said we should do. Because the answer, James is saying, is never judgment. It's never behind-the-back criticism. It's never slander. We are to deal with conflict biblically to preserve the unity of the church and the character of every Christ follower. Now that wraps up the teaching on verses 11 and 12 of James 4. But let me, as I've been doing throughout this series, end with some questions to try to bring it close to home, and then we'll be done. Here's the first question. Is there anyone that you have judged and slandered behind their back instead of following the process of Matthew 18? Instead of going to them and speaking to them one-on-one about whatever the issue is, you've talked to other people about them. You've criticized them and judged them to other people. Is there anybody like that in your past? And you know, it's a lot easier to talk about someone than to talk to someone. And so is there anything like that in your history? Here's the second question. If the answer to the first question is yes... Will you have the spiritual integrity to seek their forgiveness? Quite a few years ago, over 20 years ago, fairly early in our ministry here, uh, we were at home and the phone rang and I picked it up and I heard a voice that I hadn't heard in years. She was the pastor's secretary from a church we had served years prior. And after a few moments of of chit-chat, all the while I'm wondering, why are you calling me after all these years? She gets to the point. She said, Ed, I'm involved in a Bible study, and the Lord has brought conviction that I judged you and your wife. When you were serving on our church staff, I slandered and criticized both of you behind your backs, and God has shown me that that was not right He has forgiven me, but I need to ask the two of you to forgive me. And to be honest, I didn't even know she had done it. She she could have left that unresolved for the rest of our lives. I would have never known it. But I admired greatly that when God told her there was something that she needed to make right, she had the spiritual integrity and courage to pick up a phone and confess what she had done. And you know what? We willingly granted forgiveness, and we prayed together over the phone. And if she were to walk in today, I'd give her a big hug. 
Because I respect that kind of integrity. If there's somebody in your past that you slandered or criticized or gossiped about or judged, will you have the spiritual integrity to make that kind of phone call? And just say, I prayed about it, I was wrong. Whether they were wrong or not, doesn't matter. But you will say, I was wrong. God has forgiven me. Will you forgive me? Here's the final question. Will you, from this point on, having heard this teaching from James, will you give up any assumption that you have the right to judge anyone when you can't know their heart? Can I just say what any pastor in America would say to you? There have been times in my ministry and every other pastor when our motives have been called into question behind our backs when people will attribute motivations that were not true at all. They weren't right. And they didn't know my heart or whatever pastor might be speaking to you. And that's hurtful because it maligns somebody's character, especially one who imperfectly but deeply committed to try to follow the will of God. May we not be those who act like we understand people's motives when only God does. And may we remember from this passage in the book of James that there is only one judge, and it's not us. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would call us to spiritual integrity in this area of teaching. James has some hard truths and yet, Lord, if we will just be doers of the word and not hearers only, our hearts, our lives, our witness, our church will be changed and the witness of the gospel will be stronger because people will look into the lives of God's people and say there's something different about them. There's something special about them and the way they live their lives. And I pray, Lord, that increasingly, that would be true of all of us, including this pastor. Father, we close this service with a time of prayer. I just believe that there are those who have prayer needs that they need to bring to the altar, some burden, some need, some concern. Not to gossip, not to judge, but to ask for prayer. And I pray that in just a moment they'll do that and that our prayer partners will pray with them and hold in confidence whatever their need might be. I pray for those who are here today and they need healing. I pray that they would have the courage to come to the front and allow me as an elder of the church to anoint them with oil as scripture teaches and for Cindy and I to pray over them that they might be healed by the glorious power of our great physician. I pray for those who are here today, Lord, who need to take the next step in their spiritual journey. Maybe they don't even understand what it is, but they need to take a step. Maybe the first step, the first step of trusting Christ as Savior. If so, help them to come and just to say to one of our prayer partners, I need to take the next step. We give you these moments, brief but meaningful. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you stand together, please, as our prayer partners come? 
and you respond however God leads you to do so.